This is Delegate Brian Crosby from St. Mary's County, the Mother County, and you're listening to the Conduit Street Podcast, the best source of information on what's happening in Annapolis. Hello and welcome to the Conduit Street Podcast. Kevin Canale here with Michael Sanderson. Michael, we are recording remotely. We know that the COVID case surge is real. Thankfully, we were able to get our health department, the state health department site back online. So we're getting the data, but it wasn't a pretty picture, Michael, when it all came in. So we're recording remotely today. I mean, this is pretty scary stuff. It's kind of like an ebb and flow, felt (laughs) like getting better. And now it's like, a, you know, getting smack dack down to reality pretty quick. Yeah, I'm af- afraid so. So, you know, we've got we've got a lot of our our colleagues and counterparts in the public area um, have, have come down with their own cases and we wish all of them well. Our, our governor, a number of our county executives, hopefully it's you know, the hopefully these are mild cases and that's what we're hearing so far. So um, but I think I think every workplace is in the middle of this right now. And a lot of people were having family and neighborhood exchanges over the holidays. So, you know, we'll be remote for a little while until things feel calmer. And that seems like the sensible thing to do. So our best wishes to those who are affected. Everybody's on our mind. And uh, hopefully we can record effectively remotely and be back at the studios on Conduit Street soon. That is the hope. And with all that said, we are going to today get into a preview of the state's fiscal picture as we are about to enter the 2022 legislative session. We'll talk about the budget, surplus funds, federal funds, and look at some of the recommendations and ask for how to spend all that money. So, Michael, I want to sort of set the table here by talking about how we got here in terms of where we are right now with the state's fiscal picture. It's been a pretty remarkable ride when you think about the roller coaster that we've been on since the onset of this pandemic, right? Yeah, no fooling. This is, um, I mean, basically, if if this pandemic as a health matter dates back to the early months of 2020, we're closing in on two full years. But but as a as a consequence for government finances, the the big moment was honestly July 1st of last year, where the governor brought some budget cuts to the Board of Public Works. Remember, they're the group that can meet mid-year and cut the budget. On the 1st of July in 2020, the governor said, we think things might get really dire. We may need to cut a bunch of different programs and services. Here's my plan to do that. Some of it I'll have to go to the legislature for. I mean, that's that's now approaching 18 months ago. And I don't know, it felt pretty reasonable to think that this may be a really tough, like a weak economy usually leads to weak government revenues and a real strain on public budgets. Instead, we're going to spend some time today trying to sift through what generally looks like really positive news from the government perspective, that there's a lot of economic activity. We know a lot of things have come from the federal government to the state, to the counties for specific purposes, but also to our residents, our neighbors and businesses and so forth have received benefits as well. So I feel like there's more to sift through right now as we sit here in December than any year I can recall. This is just the weirdest landscape ever. And I I sound like a broken record for saying this lots of different times. I still don't think we understand the Maryland economy. Mm -hmm. And 
the snapshot you get by looking at govern, government revenues is a clue, but it's definitely not like, you know, this isn't the end of the whodunit where we're going to solve the crime right here. No doubt. I mean, this is certainly a remarkable situation. I don't think anyone's ever seen quite something like this. So you're right. Let's get into some of the rationale, some of the reasoning behind what we're seeing now in terms of the bottom line. So just just to sort of set this up for you, Michael, I mean, we all know the state's main revenue sources are income, tax, sales tax, and lottery. So to go back to July, the state finished uh, fiscal 21 with a $2.5 billion general fund balance. And then in September of this year, the Board of Revenue Estimates, they, 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 they estimate the revenues from Maryland, and those numbers are what go to the General Assembly and the governor so that they can craft budgets. They voted to d- dramatically increase the revenue projections for fiscal 22 to $21.1 billion, Michael. So if you're following along, we have a $2.5 billion fund balance plus another about a billion dollar write-up for 22, and then plus $1.737 billion in estimated revenue for 23. And then a few weeks ago, uh, we raised the projections again, Michael. So now all told, state budget writers and policymakers have roughly $6 billion with a B and unanticipated revenue as they construct the fiscal 23 budget. So, Michael, that's a huge number, right? And it's not something anybody thought would would happen even just a few months ago. But here we are. And let's talk a little bit about what we're seeing and why these numbers are what they are, because you mentioned earlier, we did get a lot of direct aid from the federal government, but that's not the whole story, right? Let's start maybe by by putting this in some context, like a a 5% write-up in your revenues to go from, here's our estimate, oh, now we're going to adjust the estimate upward by 5%. That's a mammoth change in this business. Like in an ordinary year. You don't need that very often. Right, right. You don't go from 2% to 7%. What you you do is we forecasted 4% growth and we missed it. It's going to be 4.6 or it's going to be 3.4. Like that's the magnitude of your ordinary circumstance where, I mean, that's why we have a, a Bureau of Revenue Estimates and a Board of Revenue Estimates that meet a few times a year to sort of fine tune these things. But it's usually we're going to, you know, we think we're off by 1% here or a half percent there. The idea of the economy is just not at all what we thought it would be and revenues are coming in at a much accelerated clip. A change of a billion dollars and then to come back with another half billion in the same fiscal year that we're just halfway through, that's it's crazy. It's crazy town. <laughs> and I, I don't mean this as an indictment of the professionals who are doing the forecasting. It's just this is the hardest crystal ball you know, effort that anybody's ever had to undergo. Yeah. And we've said that before, that it's a tough business to be in right now, estimating revenues. But there's, there's no doubt that, I mean, the trillions and trillions of dollars in federal relief saved the nation from a deep recession. And it, it likely, Michael, will elevate the state's tax revenue base even once the federal funding dries up. And that's because we've seen wage growth across all industries, Michael, and that will raise up the personal income tax collections and non-wage income growth, right? So I think there's a little to unpack there as well. We all thought at the beginning of this pandemic, okay, everybody is at home, no one's working. That means there won't be any tax revenue coming in. But what we saw, Michael, was a lot of people uh, in higher paying jobs were able to just work remotely, right? They were able to do that. So that never really dried up. That was one of the pillars here. But then also- You have people now uh, making a lot more money than maybe they previously did. And what does that do, Michael, to to the to the state's tax base besides just the obvious of, oh, well, maybe we'll bring in more money. But there is an underlying element here to certain folks and what this means for their bottom line and what they pay in taxes. 
Yeah, right. So there's there's some ingredients in this stew that that go beyond just what the sort of revenue forecasting model is about. You know, I mean, you're, if your job is to guess what's going to happen with our state income tax and with our state sales tax, you're basically saying like, who's out there working, who's making money in the stock market, and who's buying shoes, right? And 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 you know, buying subway subs. Like the, you're look, trying to model economic activity that trigger, triggers tax revenues. Um, I will say, though, I think one thing that's kind of underappreciated is we've all been aware of, you know, you see the sign at a place like you know, Chick-fil-A saying we're hiring at $18 an hour, right? There's there's a lot of wage pressure at the relatively low end uh, of, for, for workers. And a lot of jobs that, as of a couple of years ago, were paying 10 or $12 are now paying 15 or 18 or 20 and then fringe benefits and signing bonuses and so forth. It's been tough to hire and retain relatively low skilled workers in places like fast food and retail and so forth. So one thing that happens there as a matter of tax revenue is if you've been working hard, but you only clear something like say $30,000 a year, and that, that was where you were two years ago. Um, because of the way income tax systems work, the, the first band of your income is, generally speaking, becomes a personal deduction on your federal return or whatever. The short version is if you're only making twenty dollars or $30,000, you might not be paying any net income taxes. You, you pay payroll tax and you pay tax when you buy that pair of shoes or whatever. But on your income taxes, you might have been a zero. But if working in the same kinds of jobs have turned you from making 30 grand into making 44 grand, you might now suddenly be a net taxpayer and you're showing up as a contributor in your state and county income taxes where you weren't a couple of years ago. So it's so there are some people who are actually sort of moving into taxpayer mode as a result of upward pressure on wages. You know, from their point of view, hey, I'm making more money, I have more resources overall, and now I'm up to the level where I'm being asked to contribute in the direct income tax scheme. I mean, it's not like that's unfair, but that's a different thing than someone moving from 60 grand to 70 grand, where it's just a little bump in, in where they started. So um, I think that's part of it, that the, the contours of what's going on with wages, not just overall inflation, which is part of this too, but mm -hmm. wages in particular on the low end of the wage scale, that has an, an over um, sort of an, uh, that make that makes a, an exaggerated effect on government revenues and income taxes. So so I agree. And that's a great point. So so far, we have all the federal money that went directly to state and local governments. We have wage growth that is creating a whole new class of income taxpayers that didn't pay before. And then, Michael, of course, we know the third pillar. We had a lot of money from the feds go directly into Americans' pockets, right? And that gave them purchasing power, buying power that maybe they didn't have before. So that also plays into this too, right? Yeah, all of the above. That that sometimes I think people like us and people in our lane who are thinking from a government point of view, we tend to, you know, we, we focused a lot on the infrastructure bill and what it will mean for county governments, right? We represent counties, that's what we're supposed to do. But an awful lot of this recovery effort that, that the federal government undertook has been support for private businesses, has been support for individual families and taxpayers. You know, the enhancement of the child tax credit is an enormous inflow of revenue, or basically you get to hold on to more of your earned dollars 
for your family. Um, we know there were direct stimulus payments to individuals and to families. So all of that translates to buying power today for our friends and neighbors in our neighborhood, right? And that's that's who goes and buys shoes and buys, you know, buys Subway sandwiches and Chick-fil-A and all that kind of stuff. So economic activity is is frequently a matter of demand. And some of us, you know, weren't filling up our car to drive to work. So we had a little extra spending power. We weren't spending it at the gas station, but we did spend it on you know, Grubhub or, or, you know, buying shoes or buying, you know, buying new uh, comfortable pants so we can do all these uh, Zoom room meetings and stuff, right? Right. I mean, that, and that's, that's a huge point. It, it's very much true. So there are multiple factors at play here. And one other thing I think is interesting, Michael, when you look at, and we'll link all of these reports, when you look at what the, the Bureau of Revenue Estimates is saying, uh, one thing that stands out is in the out years, Michael, so fiscal 24 through 27 and 28 even, we see a structural surplus around $2 billion. Now, that was not the case a few years ago. When you looked at the out years, Maryland always had a problem in the out years. But now, because of the things that we've talked about, they're looking at a structural surplus around $2 billion, even in the out years. And again, I think that's a big change from what we've seen in the past. Just overall, Michael, how much of a, of a deal do you think it is when now these budget writers and these policymakers can look into the out years and not have to worry as much about a looming fiscal crisis because we're not going to have enough cash to cover uh, what we want to what we want to spend. Yeah, so I think I think there's a few pieces, there's a few dots to connect here. Um, one of them is you, you made a couple references to a structural deficit or a structural surplus, and that idea is one that. It's sort of, I think it's one, it should be one of your first questions if you're reading a headline that says state government has a big surplus. In your mind, like, I think the first intelligent question to ask about something like that is, is this a one-time thing or is it an ongoing thing? So we know at the state level, like the state constitution says we have to have a balanced budget, but nominally, really all that means is when you tally up whatever one-time money we have, plus all of our ongoing revenues, is it enough to pay for both our one-time spending and our ongoing spending? And because one-time stuff can fit into the one-year budget plan, that doesn't always tell you the story of what's going to continue from here onward on both the revenue and spending side. So that's this idea that Maryland has embraced for more than a decade now, a constant calculation of its sort of a structural balance. Let's take a look at the revenues coming in. And if you make reasonable assumptions of if we just go on autopilot from here, not just this year, but next year and the year after, and let's look at ongoing spending commitments next year and the year after, you put those side by side and that gives you a structural number that's different from what sometimes is an illusion of the moment. If you have a one-time windfall of revenue from the federal government, for instance, which is partially where we are. So the, the fact that even after you clear the air of one-time stuff that's not going to recur, that the state, once it you know goes through its reckoning, is still saying, no, the, the difference between our ongoing revenues and our ongoing uh, expenditures has us in the black. We're a net positive for this year and beyond. This is unusual territory for us because usually we're struggling with, we're okay this year, but you look a couple years down the road and it's trouble. 
Right. So even if you take away the pillars with all the federal assistance, both in people's pockets and direct assistance to state and local governments, we're seeing now the stuff that we talked about before with wage growth is going to stick around and that's going to have a lasting effect. At least right now, that's what they think on Maryland's economy and on our revenues. So we have all of that information now, Michael. We have the official revenue estimates. We know where we are. The next step is the Spending Affordability Committee. And they take those revenue estimates, they pair them up with economic indicators, and the idea is to limit the rate of growth of state spending to the rate of growth in the state's economy. And that makes sense, right? So then they also make recommendations to the governor and to the General Assembly to cover levels of state spending. They make recommendations on new debt authorization, state personnel, and the use of any surplus funds, Michael. So they've met, they've put out a report. Again, we'll link that. What are they saying? Because they're making several recommendations here. And one of the big ones is shoring up the state's rainy day fund. They actually want to bring that up to 9% of revenue. They want to repay some unfunded liabilities and prioritize some one-time construction costs. And I want to focus a little bit, Michael, on the one-time costs. And why does it make sense? And why is that the chorus that we're hearing of, hey, let's focus on short-term one-time spending, because that's what makes most sense right now. Why is that the case? Even when you look in the out years, it looks like we'll be okay, right? Right. So I I think the task of creating sort of fiscal guardrails is just trickier in this environment than the usual setting. And it now feels a little quaint to look back to four years ago or 10 years ago. But in an ordinary vanilla year, The Spending Affordability Committee sits down, they look at all the economic indicators, and they come up with a number. That ends up being the headline of of your typical spending affordability report is they recommend that ongoing operating expenses in the state budget increase by no more than 4.5%. And there's your headline. Fiscal watchdogs say 4.5% is your spending cap. And Maryland gleefully um, has this process that is largely legislative driven, but has a number of public sector, you know, or sort of like public stakeholders, so forth. But the Spending Affordability Committee sets this limit and Maryland invariably ends up passing a budget plan that conforms to that limit. Everybody can understand grow by no more than 4.5% because that's what we think the economy can bear with the revenue structure we have. Right? That's kind of easy to understand. What do you do in today's environment where you've got uncertainty about which among these federal programs might have a lifespan beyond what's currently been authorized? I mean, like, how long is this child tax credit going to continue? We right. already saw a weird variable with the extension of unemployment benefits. That's not really a tax thing, but it is a dollar in people's pocket thing. Um yeah, what's going to happen with the rate of inflation generally? Are we really going to be at 6 or 7% inflation for the next year? Nobody knows. Um, all those things are super weird. All those point in a direction where you probably don't just slap out a grow by no more than 18% because that's what our revenues suggest. I don't think that's the kind of recommendation you want to make in this environment. So the top line recommendation from this committee is not a number and it's not a spending limit. It's it's basically saying focus on that on that structural balance and keep that number from going upside down. Right. So when you put together the plan for the year ahead, maintain that structural balance. 
So you've already tipped our hand. One of the things we want to talk about is a really heavy theme in their recommendations is here's a list of one-time things that we can do with some of this this uh, surplus of funding. Treat it as though it's one-time money. That's the wisest thing to do. And here's a list of recommendations along those lines. Right. So even though when we look into the out years, we think that the economy will continue to be buoyed and even be better because of some of this wage growth, we still have a big bag of money sitting here right now. And again, shoring up the rainy day fund, yes, I think the governor would agree with the General Assembly and with this committee that they'd like to do that. They definitely want to pay off uh, some outstanding debt. But then, Michael, we're seeing stuff like $300 million to address, you know, longstanding deferred maintenance at DGS, the Department of General Services Operated Facilities, and, and state parks, right? So that we've seen a big commission with state parks. So we want to put some one-time expenses, right, to update some of the stuff that needs to be updated in our parks. And then also $200 million to the public four-year institutions and community colleges uh, for a lot of deferred maintenance stuff that they're dealing with as well. So also, you know, facility renewal, things that just need to be fixed that have sort of had to go by the wayside because of tight budgets in the past. Now we have all this cash around. We don't want to commit it long term. So let's invest a lot in our facilities and this deferred maintenance that we've been putting off for a long time. That That is part of this one-time, you know, pay-go spending, right? That That's the deal here. Yeah, and I think I think you just use a phrase that's going to be on a lot of policymakers' lips in the year ahead, and that's PAYGO, which is government speak. It's sort of an acronym for pay as you go. And we we did a whole episode of the podcast, I don't know, a year or two ago, talking about you know floating bonds and getting getting the you know your bond rating agencies to look at your creditworthiness and all those. Why do you use bonding and that sort of stuff? Basically, you know, the idea in most circumstances are you want to build a big building, you're going to use it for a long time, float a bond today, pay for it over some stretch of time, and you've kind of correlated the payment for the thing, the new building, along with the time we're going to use it, which is not just this year, but for a long time. Well, we're in the hiccup year right now where we have literally enough cash lying around to say, maybe some of the things that we borrowed for, we can settle up. We can settle off some 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 debt that we've issued and rather just pay off those bonds, give people their cash and be done with it. Because if you're cash poor, you just have more, excuse me, if you're cash rich, you have more opportunity to tend to things right now as opposed to make a long-term commitment for them. So um, that idea of instead of a general obligation bond, we're going to pay for A, B, and C by using pay-as-you-go funding. That's basically, you know, going to the car dealer and writing a check rather than going to the finance office and setting up a payment plan. Or just like Michael Sanderson would do, just walk into the car dealership with a big bag of money and plop it on the table (laughs) and say it's all cash. And Michael, when it comes to other short-term and one-time spending, we see recommendations for investing in and improving cybersecurity, right? Replacing legacy systems that we all rely on from our health departments to our local boards of elections. They're vulnerable, right? We want to create new apprenticeship pathways, hiring and retention bonuses to recruit more people to state government. There's there's a shortage there in terms of our state government personnel. This committee wants to fix that. So a lot of stuff that we have talked about there, cybersecurity is a big theme. I think everybody can agree we need to invest there. And those are a lot of one-time costs that you can use to bolster those networks and systems. And of course, replacing 
these old legacy systems. I think, Michael, we've said before that we, we've had local health departments in the middle of a pandemic using fax machines to transmit data. That's obviously unacceptable. So upgrading a lot of that infrastructure, that makes sense too, right? Yeah, I think the easiest way to think of this is under ordinary circumstances, if we had this situation where you know one of Mako's initiative bills during the 21 session dealt with the the sort of technology infrastructure for public health, and you know one of the things we felt like was revealed through this pandemic was our ability to keep good data going back and forth across the local health departments with the state and so forth as we're trying to track at the moment it's tracking COVID, but lots of different infectious diseases and things like that. Um, the notion that we're using antiquated old databases and computer systems, we're entering things by hand, we're sending faxes to one another and so forth. I mean, all that stuff pointed toward, you need a solution here, you need an infusion of cash to go out and replace some old systems with smarter, newer, better ones. And you, what you always run into there is, yeah, but who's got 50 million bucks to solve this problem, right? We're, we're trying to get through a tricky structural imbalance in our budget in an ordinary year. That's where you are. If we only have $50 million, we could solve this problem, but we don't. Well, maybe we're in the phase right now where this curious economy has left us in a spot where we can tend to the needs of the moment. We have a structural ongoing surplus in the budget, and we can tick off some of these things that have been on a to-do list. There's, you know, there's some tidy up things on this list from the Spending Affordability Committee as well. Like we, we've, we've got an unfunded liability here. We should tend to some of that. Um, we know we've got some infrastructure needs. We've got some some make rights in, in our capital facilities and in higher ed. Like you can start looking at a list of when we can get to it, we'll do those things. Maybe this is when you can get to it. That seems to be the flavor. So when it comes to the capital budget, Michael, uh, it's another big part of this. So these are buildings and you know facilities, et cetera. That's what we're talking about when we're talking about capital, building things. And so there's another committee, the Capital Debt Affordability Committee, and they were less bullish, Michael, than the Spending Affordability Committee uh, when they decided what to set the GO bond authorization level at uh, for fiscal 23. So the general obligation bonds that you've been talking about, that's typically the way we finance the infrastructure. They set the authorization limit to a lower limit than the spending affordability would have liked to see. But the spending affordability says, okay, well, we're concerned about that. We think it should be higher, but we do recognize that there's so much cash that we can support a healthy capital program. So they're on board with the lower recommendation under some of these following circumstances, Michael, right? And that would include that the governor's PAYGO and general obligation bonds proposals fund all the projects that have already been pre-authorized by the General Assembly for fiscal 23 to allocate funds to make investments in facility renewal for state parks and state facilities managed by DGS, other higher education facilities, community colleges, four-year institutions. We've talked about that earlier. And then also, to set aside $300 million, Michael, for the General Assembly um, to do what they want with, with their capital projects. So that's not normal, though, that last piece, right? Yeah, I think there's a there's a couple moving parts here that this, this is where these reports and these committees tend to get a little thick and it gets a little tough to follow if you're a reasonable person just trying to understand what's going on. But I think the, the, the short version as I see it is – the, the administration is sort of the majority partner in the 
Capital Debt Affordability Committee. So this is a smaller body that does a lot of technical analysis and makes some recommendations that are a combination of technical and political about how much should we borrow, right? There's two ways to pay for big expensive things. You can borrow money through bonds and pay for them, or you can use cash and pay for them. And what you have, the language from the spending affordability, the broader group that has a lot of legislators is sort of saying, we think you're being kind of stingy on the borrowing limits, but this year it feels like maybe the, the, the compromise is through a combination of borrowing, even at your low limits, and cash that we can do pay as you go, pay go, we, if a combination of a light year of borrowing and cash can get us to the list of things that we collectively want to accomplish and that we want to invest in in this year's budget cycle, then we can probably work that out. I mean, to me, that's that's the way to read the language in the spending affordability committee report. Rather than saying your number's too small, make it bigger, they're saying we probably have a different way to get to the goal we want. So we might not have to borrow a bunch of money this year, and instead we can cash our way through some of this. And that that's consistent with the things they've said on the spending side generally about look for one-time items. Well, building a building with cash is a one-time item. You've got some maintenance costs, but you're not paying off debt for the next 15 years. Right. So that, that makes a lot of sense. All of that, I think, sort of sets us up what we're dealing with, with capital and operating budgets and the big surplus as we head into session. But again, the, the Spending Affordability Committee, and I mentioned the infrastructure bill, they, they don't address that, right? And that's going to send, again, billions to the state. And what they do what they do, do though, is they ask the governor to work with the General Assembly to develop a plan on how to spend that infrastructure money, right, Michael? Because that's going to be a, a lot of deep and um, probably fiery conversations at some points of what to do with that $7 billion, you know, that, that's going to address all modes of transportation, water systems, broadband. Right now, the governor sort of has that money uh, to put into to the budget or to, to, to develop a plan, at least. The, the committee asked that the governor work directly with the General Assembly to develop a plan so that they can collaborate on that of how to best spend this infrastructure money. So that, I think that's an interesting tidbit that stood out to me, too. Again, we know it's coming. They're asking for some for some process there in terms of getting getting to the table and working with the governor on how to how to spend that money. And, and I think the obvious reference here is what happened in the waning stages of the 21 session where. Yeah, there was we, we knew that the, the federal government was still working on recovery funds and so forth. And you know, things were starting to, to, to reveal in Congress that there, there were things that were going to happen. Right. We we had we had a sense that, that the federal assistance was going to come. And lo and behold, uh, just sort of out of nowhere, there was a joint press event with the governor and the presiding officers, the speaker and president of the General Assembly standing together and saying, we now agree on a general game plan for what Maryland's going to do. And it wasn't, you know, down to the nickel, but it was saying our vision for what to do is we think we should focus 300 million towards this, 200 million towards that. And here's a list of other things that we're going to make as priorities. And like having that come from both legislative leaders and the governor, rather than big publicly competing proposals, uh, I think served Maryland pretty well. 
And the way I read some of the language in this report is that's the right way to, to you know, to sort of work this stuff out. That we're going to need an infrastructure game plan and we should be on the same page in doing it. So I, I think, you know, I, I think that's something we can hope to see is that a collaboration with policy leaders at the state level on here's here's what we generally want to focus on. It's going to be some of this and some of that, and here are the broad strokes for it. And then the individual year budget, one but one by one, will say we're going to do this project or we're going to do X, Y, and Z, but you start out with an umbrella policy that says how. Exactly. And hopefully local leaders will be a part of those discussions at some point, too, because obviously we maintain the lion's share of roads and bridges in Maryland counties, too. And, and infrastructure is a big deal for local government. So hopefully, you know, that that pans out. I agree with you that collaboration is, is the best way to sort of develop this roadmap going forward. They're going to need to be on the same page with a lot of this stuff. And, Michael, because we are sort of wonky and we have that reputation, one more thing here that stood out to me, and I want to get your take on this. So the Spending Affordability Committee, you know, tucked away in this giant report, they talk about paying debt service. And one of the things that Maryland has done during these fiscal challenges that we've had over the, the, the previous decade, the state has allocated any premium revenue from the sale of GO bonds to paying debt service, right? So that money automatically goes to paying debt service. The Spending Affordability Committee is, is, is sort of changing course, and they're saying that you know, paying debt service with the proceeds from bond sales is not an efficient approach right now when we have such a large general fund balance. So they're actually recommending dedicating bond premiums solely to capital projects uh, for fiscal year 23. So that that stood out to me as a, as a big policy change from what we've been doing. And I wanted to sort of get your take on that as somebody who's who's been through a bunch of these cycles and seen it all. What's your take on that in terms of what that means? I just think there's more moving parts here than we've ever seen before, right? So it's just, there's there's no comparison between what the decisions and the guidance that we're trying to construct at the waning days of 2021 to, to where we were three years ago or 15 years ago today. It's just, so I, I don't think it's fair to say, well, this is different. We've never done this before. This isn't what we're used to. I. I don't have just this is my my personal point of view. I don't have a lot of sympathy for this isn't normal because this whole thing is not normal. The whole structural such situation right. we're in right. is is abnormal, right? I mean, do you read it differently than that? No, no, I don't. I, I just I just find it interesting policy because it's it's been that way for a long time, and we've always sort of thought of you know, any kind of bond premiums, they're automatically locked into paying debt service. So that's not really uh, right. revenue. It's not money that's on the table to spend. But now if that's going to be the case, and again, I think it, it's probably prudent based on the situation that we're in. And I think that's what the spending affordability is saying. Hey, let's sort of recalibrate. We don't need to be dedicating that 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 money directly to paying debt service in a time where we do have a lot of cash and, and we do anticipate revenues being in fairly good shape. So we can use that for capital projects. And again, that's mm. not long-term stuff, right? So you're not getting yourself in trouble long-term, but we can do it for some one-time stuff and make better use of that cash. Yeah, that makes yeah. sense to me too. Yeah, I, I, I don't think, um, I, I mean, there, there's always a matter of sort of political philosophy as to whether incurring debt as a government is a good thing. And I, I think reasonable people can disagree about whether that's wise. And, and so that's always fair. Um, but I, I don't think there's anything immutable about the notion that 
this special fund set aside for for payment of debt. Like like the idea that you have a we pay our debt period, that's a really good practice to adhere to and that you have a structure that protects that. That's really good. It helps you when you go to the bond rating agencies to say, we take this stuff seriously. Our bondholders know that there's a process that really protects them. That's a good thing. But at the minutia level of when we refinance and there ends up being 40 million or 150 million in cash, what you know, or we get a bond premium as a result of that. What you know, what do you do with it? I, I'm I'm not sure at that fine grain level, you have the same argument that everything has to be hands off. So, I you know I, I think there's a number of things to watch here. Is it possible that we see some diff, some like aggressive differences of opinion between the administration and legislative leaders over that in particular? I guess that's possible. Mm-hmm. Um, we have a new treasurer. So so as as the state treasurer, Derek Davis will have some say on the administration of these sorts of things. And he may have a different point of view from his new professional perspective than the than the former longtime treasurer, Nancy Cobb. So that might matter as well. And, and then like I'm, I'm sort of getting into adjacent things. But the other thing to look out for is. Will we have differences of opinion in a broad way about what the capital budget for the year ahead should look like? And this is the one area where the General Assembly this year could add money to the budget that the governor doesn't put in. They can't do it in the operating budget for this year, but they can do it in the capital budget. So if there ends up being a squabble over a particular project or that sort of thing, the, the legislature can put it into the capital budget and send it to the governor, who then has the ability to strike out individual items. This is the one place where he has a line item veto. Right. So, you know, that could be a chapter in this saga that we're not used to seeing either. Right. So that that is also very interesting. We, we haven't heard or seen the governor's budget. Obviously, that will be uh, in January when the General Assembly gets to town. There's a big show where they unveil the budget. The General Assembly leadership will also they'll meet with the governor, whether it be virtually in, or in person. They'll talk about the budget and their priorities. So, you know, a, a lot of those conversations certainly are ongoing now with what the governor is doing and what his folks are doing as they craft the budget. But from this point, Michael, uh, the ball essentially is in the governor's court. Right. We know with the capital budget, it's different, as you just mentioned. But for for the operating budget, the, the General Assembly can only cut. So they can't add, they can't rearrange things uh, to spend less in one area and more in another. There's no trickery that can happen there with the operating budget. So really, now the ball is in the governor's court, right? We're waiting for the governor to, to, to submit his budget to the General Assembly. And so that that's what has to happen next. That's the next step here. He has all the, the numbers. They have the recommendations from spending affordability. And now they're going to craft this budget. But but Michael, what what is the state's budget situation from where you sit mean for counties, right? Because I think we have a lot of the the same priorities as the state does. But in in previous years, maybe we were really worried when things look bad. That typically means that maybe the state can't afford to to do what it's done in in certain programs, or it means that the state's going to shift stuff onto us. What do you see moving forward now, at least for for fiscal 23 budget? How does this affect local governments, county governments in particular? Wow, that's that's probably like a whole podcast episode. I'm not I'm not putting a pin in it. I'm not running away from it. But that could be that could be an extra half hour. I, I would say I, I think you already you already like sort of um, got the lead there that the main story is this shouldn't be 
the environment that we saw, let's say, three or four years ago, where you know there's there's a there's sort of a contested case for for every million dollars in the state budget. It's only there because there's a little bit of cutting that happened over here in a big budget reconciliation bill. They're changing this formula. They're not going to honor this commitment for one year. They're going to push things back. Like all sorts of odds and ends would go into a carefully crafted, tricky, tight budget plan. And in those years, you always end up with the legislative analysts come up with a recommendation. Well, we don't think that disparity grant that helps the the counties who don't get much out of their income tax. We don't think you really need to spend all of that money. You could probably cut 20 million out of that. Well, that's a big deal for the low wealth jurisdictions who are really kicking in with their own local effort. It's a big deal intergovernmentally, right? We're used to proposals at the state level that would shift costs onto counties or would, in our judgment, sort of under support joint functions and push that onus onto the counties. In a tough budget year, we're used to seeing those sorts of things. That's just part and parcel of doing a tight budget. Um, I don't I don't think this is we're not like we're not trying to claim that everything is rosy and magnificent, but there's no reason for this year to be like that. Right. I mean, that's the way I would start. This is we shouldn't be haggling over two million and ten million dollars in the way that we sometimes do this year. It should be about how do we strategically deploy some one time money to take care of long term problems, to solve systems that need upgrades, you know, to tend to things that have been exposed by this pandemic. Um, that, that's the sort of stuff. And like you said, the state has a list of priorities. And as you go through it, wow, we are really, really invested in our infrastructure, both at the, like the water and wastewater level, but our roads and bridges and transportation, broadband and cybersecurity and so forth. Like that whole list, the, the, the state cares about it and the counties care about it as well. We should be force multipliers in an awful lot of this this sort of priority setting. But Hopefully, we're not on our heels trying to, you know, fight off some, you know, wingnut $10 million budget cut like sometimes we are. So bottom line here, Michael, from a county government perspective, we're used to, you know, having to to fight for every penny, right? And we're used to trying to defend against cost shifts. This time, it's going to be more so about, okay, we all need to get to the table and decide how we can spend this money in the in the best way that we can to get the most value out of each dollar. So it really kind of flips the script when you think about it versus before we're going to cut all this stuff and you guys are hate it and we're going to have to show up and, and fight like cats and dogs to, to keep that money in the budget for really important stuff. Now it is, wow, we have all this money. We need to decide how to spend it. And that's going to be the haggling now. It's not so much like what do we need to cut, which programs are most important. Yeah. It is what can we do to, to boost up these programs and where you put that money moving forward. So it's really fascinating to me that all of this has sort of been tipped on its head. Yeah. And and I, I think, you know, we've mentioned a number of things in the sort of infrastructure realm and capital facilities and so forth. We definitely shouldn't lose sight of, of our public health structures, both both the infrastructure and their systems and technology, but also the staff and equipment and uh, sort of ongoing costs of running our public health enterprise. Uh, those, those professionals have never had it as tough as they do right now. Um, I think, you know, like 
like the state has to look at what are what are we doing to handle where we are right now and have been for the last almost two years? How are we ready for the next year or two for whatever the play out of this current pandemic is? And then where are we in being prepared for what might happen next? Um, that has to be part of the thinking here. And once again, the local governments and our health departments, we are on the same sheet of music and we are yet again a force multiplier on that as a priority. Agree 100%. And so, Michael, that'll wrap up the budget preview for the 2022 legislative session, which is approaching rapidly. And and as I as I mentioned that, I, I, you know, what do you think next session looks like, Michael? I mean, obviously, right now, we're in the middle of a really bad wave in terms of positive cases and hospitalizations. The House of Delegates has already announced that they're going to do their committee hearings uh, virtually. So you're going to be on the Zoom again. The Senate, I think, is going to make some announcements. You know, they were waiting till after the holidays. But I mean, around town last year was sort of a ghost town. Nobody was really around because, of course, you couldn't get into the buildings. You'll be able to get into like the House office building now and you can go and talk to legislators, but you won't be in the committee rooms. Do you think that means we'll have more people in Annapolis? I think we're all we're all just making our best guess right now. So <laughs> I, I think what, what from what we've heard from the House of Delegates, the, the big difference appears that um, that people like us who are stakeholders in the policy process should be able to get into the building to be able to have a meeting with the chief of staff to a delegate or with a couple of delegates or whatever, catch them up on our big issues, deliver, here's a copy of the amendment that we had talked about, let me walk you through it. It, it was so hard last year being able to manufacture those sort of one-to-one -one and face-to-face -face interactions when the whole campus was shut down, not just the public hearings. Right. So. So being able to be in the room and deliver your two minutes of testimony at the table has always been sort of a cherished thing. And we missed that last year. But I think the thing we missed the most was the underbrush of legislative process. I'm going to drop this off at the delegate's office. Oh, I got to talk to her staff person and I explained this issue. I think it's going to be helpful. You know, they're going to give me a call if they don't like the amendment, but I think they're going to offer the amendment that we're working with them on. Like you couldn't have that interaction. You can email a document and hope somebody gets it, but it was never the same. Mm -hmm. So even if the Senate adopts something similar to the House, and we don't yet know what that'll look like, but even if it's going to be you know, you know, use use Zoom and YouTube to follow and participate in public hearings themselves, but there will be opportunities for one-to-one -one interaction. Um, I think being in Annapolis will have more value in 22 than it did in 21. That's my best guess as with, with the way they're pointing at the moment, but who knows? I mean, you know, the health metrics are going to have a lot to say about this and and everybody wants to be safe and reasonable, but also like do the public's business effective and properly. So it's a, it's a tough balance. I don't envy them in making these decisions. I think they did their best with a tough hand last year. I'm sure they'll 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 have the same the same you know, mindset for the coming year. But what does it mean for the rest of us? I don't know. Yeah, I mean, no doubt uh, you, you got to have a lot of sympathy for for the folks making these decisions. And I have no doubt that their number one priority 
is public health and safety, not only for the legislators, but for the folks coming into the buildings. They need to keep those people safe, too. So, yeah, I mean, who knows? I agree with you. I think that there will be more value, at least in terms of what we're hearing now. So maybe it won't be a ghost town like like it was much of last session. But, you know, things could change. We don't know. Again, we're in the middle of a very, very bad wave right now. The numbers keep going up. It's scary stuff. But the people that have to make those decisions are in a tough spot. We'll hear from the Senate presumably soon as we approach session. You know, Michael, we're only a few weeks away. It's kind of crazy to think about that. But I guess I agree. I think that it'll be a different flavor in Annapolis for this session, at least where we stand right now. So we'll go ahead and leave it there. As always, if you enjoy the podcast, please go ahead and subscribe. That way, all of these episodes will be sent directly to the device of your choice. You can also follow along on social media, Facebook, Twitter, and then, of course, our Conduit Street blog. And I have to mention, Michael, we're publishing some legislative previews. So make sure you check out the blog because you'll, you'll find a lot of good content there. So don't miss that. But for Michael Sanderson, this is Kevin Canale signing off, and we will talk to you soon.